come to be with us. And uh, of course, as Dave mentioned earlier, this Wednesday is July the 4th. That is uh, the day that we as Americans celebrate our country's freedom. And I certainly hope that all of you will take the opportunity uh, to, at some point, maybe take in some fireworks displays, doing something like that. Maybe you'll eat a hot dog, uh, catch some baseball, eat some apple pie. I mean, do, 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 do everything that you can think of that's American. I think that's a good thing for us, to, for us to do as we celebrate with our family and friends. But what some of you may not know is that it was actually on July the 2nd of 1776 that the Continental Congress... Uh, voted to and, and to declare our independence from Great Britain. You may not have known that. And actually, July the 3rd was spent with the members of the Continental Congress debating back and forth and actually taking what Thomas Jefferson had drafted in the original Declaration of Independence, and they edited it down by nearly a fourth so that it wound up becoming the declaration that all of them voted to approve on July the 4th. Of 1776 and then here's another little tidbit of information contrary to what some of our paintings that we see they were not all standing there to sign that declaration all at one time in fact it took nearly two weeks for someone with really good handwriting to convert what Thomas Jefferson had written to the large parchment paper that we now have that's housed in the Washington DC and so many of those who are part of the Continental Congress didn't put their signature down there on that Declaration of Independence until August the 2nd. And still five more of them came later on August the 9th. So there you go. There's your little bit of history for you. Nevertheless, it's July the 4th that we celebrate our country's independence and because it was on that day, it really was on that day that the Continental Congress voted to approve the Declaration, the message of which eventually spread throughout America, spread across the Atlantic Ocean, and went all the way to Great Britain, the message which declared that America was free from British rule. So along with me, I hope that you will take time this week to celebrate our freedom. And uh, what's interesting to me is that uh, James Adams said this. He said, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable day in the history of America. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations. From one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. Well, James Adams got it right. He was just off two days. So I hope that here on July the 4th that you will be able to uh, excitedly be able to celebrate our country's freedom. But this morning, as we gather together, I want to make known to you an even greater reason that you have to celebrate. You see, it was not by the decision of the Continental Congress, but instead by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary that you and I are offered an even greater freedom. Not a freedom from the rule of Great Britain, but rather from the tyranny of our greatest enemies, Satan and sin and death. And furthermore, this freedom that we are offered is not a freedom that we have to fight for, nor is it a freedom that we have to earn. Rather, it is a freedom that we receive as a gift through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life in exchange for ours. In fact, we can rightfully say that our truest and our greatest freedom does not come as a result of our declaration of our independence from any earthly king or ruler or monarch or any kind of government. Rather, it's just the opposite. 
It comes through our declaring our complete and total dependence upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ who was crucified and who has risen from the dead. In fact, according to the gospel, it is only through declaring our complete and total dependence upon his substitutionary sacrifice and his victory over death that any of us will ever truly be set free. And brothers and sisters, that, is, that gives us every reason to come here this morning and to celebrate. This morning, in our continued study of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see just how much it cost the Lord of glory to be able to provide us with that freedom. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark once again to chapter 14. And today we find ourselves looking at verses 32 through 42. And, and here we will read about Jesus leading his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will spend some time in earnest prayer with his Father. This section, as you know, comes on the heels of Jesus having instituted the Lord's Supper, having given the Passover meal a new meaning because of his impending death and his resurrection. It also comes on the heel of Judas having left his company and, and has gone out to betray Jesus as it uh, is said that he did. And it also comes on the heels of the passage that we looked at last week and that is Jesus' prediction that the other 11 disciples would fall away. All of that has happened and then we come to verse 32 where the Bible says, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and he prayed and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them the third time and said, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you as a people who celebrate freedom this week. We thank you for the freedom that we have, that you have given to us. You have provided us inexplicably freedoms that others in this world do not have. And we do not know why, but we thank you for the freedoms that we do have, that we can gather just as we've done this morning and open your word and read it aloud and be able to discuss it and talk about faith and salvation and, and our hope and that you are our ultimate king. We're grateful for the freedom that you have given us to be able to assemble just like this. 
We're grateful for the freedom that you give us to be able to share our faith with others freely without the fear of, of, of reparations or any kind of issues coming back toward us. We're thankful for that. Father, we recognize that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so we acknowledge that you are the one who has given us this gift. And, and so, Father, as a people, as Americans, we are grateful and we thank you for our freedoms. But we, as Christians, particularly thank you for the freedom that you have given us through Christ. Thank you for the salvation that was purchased for us through his blood and his death on the cross of Calvary. And Father, as we peer into your word this morning, I pray that you would allow the gravity of that to rest upon us, that we might be able to experience the true freedom that comes from it. I may ask that you may be glorified in everything that is said and done in this service. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This particular passage of scripture that I just read for you is often cited and used as a means of encouraging believers to pray. Uh, after all, Jesus encouraged his disciples, uh, particularly Peter, James, and John, to pray and to be watchful as they did so, just as he himself set an example and prayed. Um, and certainly and definitively, we can say that if Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, recognized that it was important for him to spend time in prayer, then we can certainly understand that those of us who are weak and frail and sinful, we also should make prayer a priority in our lives. There's much that can be said from this particular passage about, uh, about that and about prayer from our text, as well as there could be, we could talk about the failure that the disciples demonstrated in their lack of being able to remain awake and watchful as they were commissioned to pray by Jesus. But in the time that we have together this morning, what I want us to do is to focus our attention and focus our thoughts on what I mentioned earlier. And that is how this passage pulls back the veil to show us a glimpse of just how much it cost the Lord to provide us with the salvation and with the freedom that we have in him. After having spent a good deal of time reading and, and, and studying this passage in depth, it's my belief that there is... Not another scene in, in, in all the scripture that gives us such a vivid image of Jesus who in his divinity remains so distant from us. It's a picture that stands so far removed from us that all we can do is, is really look at him in awe and in wonder of who he is. Yet this is also at the very same time a passage that provides us with an image of Jesus with which we can identify it's a picture of Jesus that so clearly displays him in his humanity. So much so that were it not that way, as Sinclair Ferguson has written, we could never have believed him to be fully as well as truly human. As we read, what Mark tells us is that Jesus led his disciples out to a place that we learn in John's gospel was a, a familiar spot to them. It's a place that... That, that was a garden outside the city walls of Jerusalem there at the foot of the Mount of Olives that evidently Jesus and his disciples went to on a fairly regular basis. And significantly, the name of this garden, was this place was called Gethsemane, which in the Hebrew gets its name from being a place where the olive press was. In other words, it was the place where the olives were pressed down and, and crushed in order for their oil to be extracted. Now, 
scholars have both noted the irony and the significance of that name because it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where, like those olives, Jesus himself would be pressed and crushed to his very soul. We know that by how Mark describes him in verse 33. Notice the vivid language that Mark uses in description of Jesus. He says that he was troubled and deeply distressed. Those Greek words that Mark uses there depict in the strongest of terms the intense emotional state of Christ when he gets to the garden. Mark goes on to record Jesus' own very words there in verse 34. Jesus says himself, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. What is portrayed for us in this passage is, is our Savior who is overwhelmed with sorrow. He, he is our Savior who is burdened down with grief. He is despairing to the point of being pressed down and crushed underneath his heavy load. Now, while the reason for his emotional estate may seem obvious to us, we need to make sure that we understand exactly what it is that is crushing Jesus to his very soul. We get that answer in verse 36. Mark explains that Jesus went on a little farther ahead of Peter, James, and John. He fell down on his face and he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That leads me to the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning that I provided for you. What Mark describes here is a picture of the awful burden of the cup. The awful burden of the cup. If we are not careful, when we read this passage, we might mistakenly assume that what causes Jesus this intense anguish was the prospect of his coming betrayal and his abandonment by his disciples and the excruciating suffering that he would experience on the cross and then ultimately his death. And while all of those elements certainly are part of what weighs down upon Jesus, there is much more to it than simply those things. In fact, the cup to which Jesus refers here and prays that God would remove from him is really a metaphor that harkens back to the Old Testament and to the suffering that accompanies the display of God's divine judgment and wrath. We read in the, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 15 and 16, the prophet there reveals that the, the Lord says to him, the Lord God of Israel says, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. The same metaphor for the cup is used again and again in the Old Testament. It's used in the book of Psalms. It's used in the book of Isaiah. It's used in the book of Job, as well as other places. And every time, the majority of the time when it is used, it is, it is used to refer to the wrath of God that is poured out in its full strength upon the wicked. It's referred to again in the book of Revelation regarding those who bow down and worship the beast 
John the Revelator writes this in Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. He says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Jesus himself has referred to the cup earlier in the Gospel of Mark, back in chapter 10, where you will remember that James and John, the sons of thunder, came to him and foolishly asked, can we sit one on your right hand and one on your left? And Jesus asked them, boys, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? And they foolishly answered, yes, we are able. Jesus says, you have no idea what you are even saying. In fact, from the context and later on in chapter 10, verse 45, we actually read that the cup that Jesus referred to there actually pointed forward to his ultimate sacrifice where he said that he had come not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, the cup into which Jesus stared long and hard here in Gethsemane was the cup reserved for the sin bearer it was the one who would take upon himself the penalty of God's righteous wrath and his holy indignation against sin. And to help us put that into perspective, James, James L. Edwards has helpfully noted that it is one thing, fearfully as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God, but who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in this world. This is exactly what Paul describes having taken place on the cross when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In order to make that happen, in order to accomplish that for you and for me, Jesus had to drink every last drop of the cup of God's righteous wrath. And in doing so, he necessarily experienced an abandonment and a darkness of cosmic proportions. And here is where we stand in awe of what we see. You see, only God could satisfy God's righteous demands. Only one who was perfect and sinless and holy and spotless, without stain, without blemish, only one like that could atone for sins. You and I would never be able to do that because we don't have that kind of resume. No human being has that kind of resume. The Bible clearly tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as such, all of us stand condemned before God's wrath because the wages of sin is death. Only one is far removed from you and from me as the east is from the west could satisfy God's demands for justice. So what was in that awful burden of that cup? What was in that cup? Well, to quote James Edwards once more, it was not simply the prospect of his betrayal, his abandonment, his, his excruciating suffering or his death, but rather it was the specter of identifying with sinners so fully 
as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. Now, note with me that this burden was so awful. The concept of what Jesus knew was coming was so horrific that when he considered it, it's almost as if he fell back from it. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Jesus was smothered by a mere whiff of what, would go, what he would go through on the cross. As we've seen in our study of Mark's gospel, Jesus knew what was coming. He had predicted it on three to four previous occasions. But Keller notes, we are not talking about information here. Now Jesus is beginning to taste what he will experience on the cross. And it goes far beyond physical torture and death. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross. William Lane puts it this way. He says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus experiences is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor is it a shrinking away from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father who now contemplates the prospect of being alienated from him. That is what is entailed in the judgment upon sin. Lane goes on to say that Jesus went to the garden to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. And it is that horrible recognition that causes Jesus to fall on the ground there in that garden. And as Mark says, he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour is, is equivalent to the cup in that particular sense. And then Jesus prays this intimate plea. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. What such a prayer indicates, as D.A. Carson has written, is that Jesus is tempted to seek an alternative to sin-bearing suffering as the route by which to fulfill his Father's redemptive purposes. That leads me to the second point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. The next picture that we see portrayed for us in the garden is this. It is the picture of the humble submission of the Son's will to the Father. The humble submission of the Son's will to the Father's. Jesus' prayer is one of sheer agony. He says, Abba, Father. This is the language of family. This is the language of everyday relationships in the home. In those days, Abba was the word that would have been used by a child to address the father when the father came home from work. It would be the equivalent of when I come home, my kids look at me and go, Daddy. Jesus cries out to his father, his heavenly father, and he says, Daddy, please, you can do all things. There is nothing that is too great for you. Please then, please, take this cup from me, Daddy. Brothers and sisters, the picture that Mark paints for us is heart-wrenching. And should you find this prayer from his lips to be disconcerting, let me report to you that it doesn't happen once. 
It doesn't happen twice. It happens three times. Verse 39, Mark says he went back and he prayed again these same words. In Matthew 26, verse 44, we write that Jesus prayed the exact words a third time. The prospect of facing the abandonment of his own friends and associates was one thing. But to face the abandonment of his heavenly father was nearly more than Jesus could stand to consider. And so he begs his father as to whether or not our redemption might be accomplished through some other means. In his horror, he cried out to avoid the cross. But then I want you to notice that he adds this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And what such a prayer tells us is that despite what he knew lay in front of him, Jesus' will to obey his Father was stronger than his desire to serve himself. Consider the fact that beginning from the very first part of his ministry, from the time that he was tempted by Satan in the desert, from the very outset of that time, Jesus has refused to take the exit ramp from the pathway of suffering servanthood. He has refused to step off that path the entire time. In fact, he has declared again and again and again, his will is to do the will of his Father. In John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. In John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, how did he teach them to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus prays here in the garden of Gethsemane, he is effectually praying the same prayer. Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And therefore, when we, what we come to realize is that when Jesus felt the most excluded from God's presence, he in fact was the closest to God's will. I told the first service, I'll tell you, chew on that thought a little bit this week when you have time. Let me state it for you again. When Jesus felt the most excluded from God's presence, he in fact was the closest to God's will. Edwards puts it into perspective. He says, Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary. For in a valley beneath the city, Jesus allows his soul to be crucified. On a hill above the city, he relinquishes his body. So, in this picture that we see portrayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have unveiled for us this awful burden of the cup that is before Jesus that he must drink. And then we also have portrayed for us the humble submission of the Son's will to the Father. And when we truly contemplate those two images, we are led to consider the last point that I want you to note and the last image that I think this text brings out for us. It's the third point on your outline this morning. And it's this, the amazing depth of our Savior's love. The amazing depth of our Savior's love. Kent Hughes has written it this way. He says, In the greatest display of obedience that will ever be known, 
Jesus took the full chalice of man's sin and God's wrath, looked, shuddering deep into its depth, and in a still act of his will, drank it all. He submitted to the will of his Father out of his love for his Father, but also out of love for you and for me. I want us to consider just how deep is our Savior's love for us. In the context of this passage and in light of the distress and the anxiety that Jesus experienced at the concept of being forsaken by his heavenly Father as the sin bearer who would endure God's wrath, we are able to recognize the depth of his love because of what it cost him. Remember Jesus taught in John chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends? Certainly, Jesus laid down his life for us. He willingly sacrificed himself so that you and I might be set free. But in giving of himself, he knew that he would be forsaken by his Father, by the one with whom he had had uninterrupted fellowship for all eternity. From the one who along with the Holy Spirit, he had enjoyed an eternity of communion and the likes of which you and I can never imagine. Yet now he would experience separation. He would experience forsakenness. That is the first way that we can begin to plumb the depths of Christ's love for us. But then we should also consider the fact that, that the depth of his love is also measured by how little you and I deserve such a gift. You see, if our lives had been marked by, by continued and uninterrupted obedience and love for him, if, if we had for all of our lives remained true to him and, and, and displayed selfless devotion to him, then we could expect him to love us. We could certainly expect him to love us in proportion to the amount of love that we had given to him. But the Bible tells us that none of us have ever done that. What we actually learn is that our consistency has never been there as it pertains to loving him as we ought. And that further points to the amazing deep, deep love that he has for us. We are the ones who deserved his wrath. Yet in his love, he absorbed that wrath against us and he took our place as our substitute. He drained the cup of God's wrath that in our sinfulness, we should have been made to drink. And if that weren't enough, then consider the third way that we know how deep his love is for us, and that is by the greatness of the benefits that we receive from being loved by him. Do you realize that as sinners we stand guilty before God and that all we have in front of us is hell and punishment? That that is our end goal. That is, that is where we are headed, were it not for Jesus. An eternity of pure misery, having to drink and to endure the cup of God's holy and righteous indignation. But because of Christ's sacrifice and his display of love, what we've been given instead is an eternity of joy and peace and fulfillment and the ability to worship God in his very presence and when we consider that, only then can we begin to truly understand how deep his love for us is. When we consider the fact that apart from Christ, we are, we are doomed. We are the pawns of Satan. Death reigns over us, not only in this life, but for all eternity. 
And that all we will ever know is that sin keeps its naughty little fingers tied around our throats and our hearts and our minds in a stranglehold which cannot be broken. But that in his love for us, he broke those bonds. He separated us from all of that sin. And he has released us from the shackles that have kept us imprisoned. Only then, in considering that, can we truly begin to fathom the depths of just how much he loves us. And friends, such is the freedom that we discussed beginning at the sermon this morning. A freedom far greater and a salvation far superior to anything that we could ever comprehend. This is the amazing depth of our Savior's love that was on display for us here, here in the garden. In one of his greatest sermons, one of his great sermons that he preached, preached Jonathan Edwards said this, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was able to suffer. And as such, Jonathan Edwards writes this. He says, there are two things to consider about Christ's wonderful love. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wicked sinners like you and me. It reminds me of this song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son and make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Today in our passage, we have traveled to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and we have seen him portrayed for us as our Savior, the fully divine Son of God with whom we cannot identify. He's the only one who could break death's curse by becoming a curse for us, by dying vicariously for sinners like you and me and by rising victoriously so that we might one day rise. We've also seen portrayed for us our Savior, the fully human Son of Man with whom we can identify. See, we've seen him on display for us. We've seen his emotions that necessarily accompanied one who knew what would happen to him. He could, he could taste it. He could smell it. He could feel it in his bones as he peered into that cup. And he ultimately realized what would happen when on the cross, we read later in Mark 15, verse 34, he cried, my God, my God, why? Hast thou forsaken me? 
What this passage reveals to us then is the awful burden of the cup that Jesus would drink. It reveals to us the humble submission of his will to the fathers. And then it also reveals to us the amazing depth of his love for you and me. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. In an unimaginable display of love, Jesus submitted himself to the unimaginable horror of being God forsaken so that sinners just like you and just like me, might become God accepted. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Charles Wesley, 1738, penned the words of this hymn, And Can It Be? He struggles with the deep love of Jesus and he begins, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me? Who caused his pain? Me? Who him to death pursued? (laughs) Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for, oh my God, it found out me Mm. long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke the dungeon aflame with light my chains fell off my heart was free I rose and went forth and followed thee No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Let me ask you, do you know that love? Has that love penetrated your heart? It is that love more than any other love that you have been longing for all of your life. That is not a love that can be satisfied by a spouse. It cannot be satisfied by a child. It cannot be satisfied by your pursuit of a hobby or anything else. All of those things, as good as God is to give them to us, are good, but they lack the ability to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart to be loved like that. And that is the message of the gospel That Jesus loved you that much, who was unworthy of his love, that he faced horrible things far worse than you and I could ever imagine to secure your salvation. And so this morning, this is what I would say. The call of the gospel calls you to cry out to the Father just as Jesus did. Abba, Father.
not my will, but thy will be done. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.